Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al today. On Sunday, we will celebrate the feast of the great doctor of the church, St. Teresa of Avila. We're going to learn more about her with our next guest, Anthony Lillis. Dr. Anthony Lillis is the chief academic officer at the Avila Institute. He also serves as associate professor, admissions director, and academic advisor to the academic dean of St. John's Seminary and has been appointed as the academic dean of St. Patrick's Seminary and University in Menlo Park. His expertise is in the spiritual doctrine of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity and the Carmelite doctors of the church, St. Teresa of Avila, who we're talking about today, St. John of the Cross, and St. Therese of the Sioux. He's the author of 30 Days with Teresa of Avila and other books. You can follow along with what he's doing and what he's writing at his blog, beginningtopray.blogspot.com. Dr. Anthony Lillis, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Pete. No, this is exciting. I'm I'm uh, I'm looking forward to diving in uh, and learning more about Saint Teresa of Avila and how her understanding of the spiritual life can impact us today. And we're so we want to get into that. But first, can you just give us a general understanding of who this incredible saint was and kind of the 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 broad brushstrokes of her life? Sure. She um, she's the the foundress of a. Um, uh, reform, or more than a reform, a, uh, a, a complete renewal of the Carmelite life. Uh, and so she, called the Discalced Carmelites, and they uh, have convents all over the world, they're cloistered, and uh, she uh, started uh, first with cloistered religious, and then uh, she met John of the Cross, and uh, together they started up uh, uh, the uh, male group of the discalced uh, 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 Carmelites. Discalced means they don't uh, they don't wear shoes, and um, and that was a kind of a return to a more radical poverty, a greater simplicity of life, a life focused on the practice of contemplative prayer, and um, and so successful was she that the Carmelite. Uh, convent that she came from, the Incarnation, asked her to come back. So she founded the Discalced Carmelites, but the the o- o- order of um, uh, not Carmel, the 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 um, the O Carms, invited her to come back to her monastery and to reform them. So she's the foundress of the Discalced Car- Carmelites and the reformer of the uh, the uh, o- order of the Carmelites. The, um, uh, these two Carmelite families, we still have them here today, uh, and uh, and with convents around the world, with priests around the world. And uh, in the 16th century, she was given a gift of prayer and leadership uh, that helped uh, uh, reform the church. And as a result, the Carmelite family that we have today uh, has produced some of the uh, uh, the most powerful and most stunning uh, doctors of the church that that, uh, that have influenced uh, the way we pray, and uh, uh, it's a gift uh, to be able to talk about them. It's what I, I get to do for a living. Uh, whenever someone is able to tap into their spiritual riches, I've always noticed their prayer life just explodes. Yeah, and one of the things that clearly 
characterized her mission from the Lord and her writings and her lasting influence in the church. And we're talking about 500 years of impact here from Teresa of Avila was this, she was a, a pioneer, as you say, of, of the renewal of contemplative prayer. Uh, and so let's break that down a little bit as to how, how are we as Catholics supposed to understand contemplative prayer? And I wonder if you could frame it within the context of one of her books was The Way of Perfection, which she meditates on the Lord's Prayer, which of course is the prayer Jesus himself taught his disciples to pray, his apostles to pray, when they asked to be taught to pray. You know, they said, please teach us to pray. And so this was the prayer he taught them. So something about that prayer, I mean, there's lots of things about that prayer that we should take notice of because it's the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. But how, help us understand how she understood contemplative prayer and the connection with the Our Father. Sure. Uh, for her, the Our Father, because the Lord taught it, she was completely convinced it, it contained in itself the highest, most perfect of all prayers. And so only by entering into the prayer revealed to us by Jesus, the prayer that he commanded us to say, only by entering into that could we fully uh, uh, explore uh, the gift of contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer, she calls it, oración mental, sometimes we call it mental prayer. For her, this kind of prayer is a conversation of, um, of the soul with the Lord. It's, it's a, a conversation where we pay attention to his um, uh, uh, grandeur and presence, uh, sovereignty over everything, and his great, immense, inexhaustible love for us all at the same time. And um, and we pay attention to who we are uh, as unworthy, uh, um, having merited uh, by no means the ability to stand before him, but nevertheless being called to stand before him in prayer. And, and then finally, um, uh, as she goes into the words of the Lord's Prayer, uh, we we attend to in this mental prayer, this contemplative prayer, the words that we say. And so she unpacks those words in um, uh, in her work called The Way of Perfection. And as she unpacks those words, her, her purpose is to show how three different expressions of prayer kind of flow into each other and are ordered towards contemplative prayer or mental prayer or this conversation that I was just speaking about. And so the three expressions of the prayer that uh, she refers to that you find it also in the Catechism of the Catholic Church are vocal prayer, meditation, and finally contemplative prayer. And um, the beauty of our Catholic faith is that uh, uh, in our spiritual tradition, we have never gone beyond uh, and other religions consider us very primitive for this, but we've never gone beyond on the humble cry of, uh, of the heart, the humble cry of a son and daughter before the Father. And uh, in that humble cry of trust and confidence in him, uh, she, as she unfolds his prayer, uh, helps us understand these words have meaning that are beyond what we can understand, and we enter into those great mysteries simply by saying them with faith. She says, uh, as she goes through this book, she opens up a meditation on all that the words actually mean, what the, the world of um, uh, the interior world, the innermost being of Jesus' own heart is of 
unveiled to us and and so we can ponder that and receive it and let it form the way we think. And then finally, though, uh, as, uh, as she um, uh, brings her great work uh, to, to kind of an apex, it opens up this face-to-face, heart-to-heart encounter where with the ears of our heart, we, we hear God's voice uh, blessing in our lives. Mm. And, um, and, and, and with, with the eyes of our heart, the eyes of faith, uh, receive, uh, behold his glory in a way that transforms us. And um, so what does this mean practically? It means if we pray to our Father with due attention to the words we say, to who we are to be saying it, and who it is that we're addressing, um, the very heights of Christian, Christian sanctity are veiled to us. Grace pours into us. Yeah, that's beautiful. I uh, was reading one of your your blogs from several years ago where you talk about uh, this this book and some of the things that you, you you pull out of it from what she wrote. And one of the words that stuck out to me was you talked about authenticity, that she saw this prayer as a way to authenticity, that being the alignment of what we say with what we do. And I, what struck me so much about that was how um, the word authenticity, to be authentic, is a is a really high value in the world right now. People, especially in the younger generations, want people to be authentic, their true selves. But clearly her understanding of the true self is different than maybe the secular world's understanding of kind of living, being true to yourself. How would you make that distinction? How would she define authenticity compared to maybe how the world might define it? In the world that we live in, uh, it's influenced by an idea that uh, we are... Um, we are the uh, not only the authors of our acts. I mean, West, Western civilization slaves believe that how we use our own human agency, our own freedom in the world, kind of defines who we are. But um, uh, but in Western civilization, we've always understood that in the context of uh, we uh, uh, we exercise our freedom in. Uh, a world that we didn't create ourselves, but that we received. Uh, and, uh, and so authenticity uh, for, for a Christian is uh, becoming uh, the gift that God created us to be. He, from before the foundation of the world, he saw us and pondered us and chose to summon us into existence. And when he chose to summon us into existence, uh, uh, and he is doing that right now while you're listening to this uh, uh, this radio show. What uh, the breath that you're taking, the heartbeat you have, it, it, you have it because God has willed it to be. Because he he delights in your existence. It's it's a treasure to him, and that's a pure gift to you. But at the same time, it's also a challenge, and uh, and so the the challenge of becoming the gift that God created us to be. Um, uh, uh, this is this is the pathway Christian authenticity. It's very different from um, what goes on in the world where you kind of create yourself, and the self you create is uh, is uh, uh, oftentimes dependent on what's expedient, convenient, uh, uh, what gives you uh, 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 power, prestige, or pleasure, and. Um, or popularity, if you if you're 
attaining those things with some uh, uh, emotive explosion, especially if you can if you can identify yourself as a victim in one way or another. In our culture, you become authentic, and and that false sense of victimhood and mm-hmm. that and that false use of uh, emotions it's disingenuous. We kind of know it. Yeah. Um, but God has called us to something better. Right, and she talks about how her encounter with Jesus uh, helped her really understand that saving gift that his, his heart pierced for us and that she encountered that love anew and was able to con- you know, have a mystical contemplation with that. So let's, let's talk that, uh, more about that after the break. This is Crescent in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak filling in for Al. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in with Al. We're here with Dr. Anthony Lillis. He recently wrote a book called 30 Days with Teresa of Avila, and we're going to be celebrating her feast day uh, coming up on Sunday. And so we're talking about uh, her understanding of prayer and the role of contemplation. And so I'd like to, to jump in here a little bit about she talks about the the heights of mystical contemplation and all of that being surrounded by, formed by, inspired by God's passionate, burning love for us. So help us understand, Dr. Lillis, the, the difference between kind of normal contemplation, if you will, and maybe mystical contemplation. And, and how do we as just normal people, normal believers, kind of move towards encountering that burning heart of God? Well, the, the, the first thing uh, uh, to kind of con- contextualize this, and, and I love the way you phrase the question, Christian, uh, the Christian contemplative tradition, spiritual tradition, is, uh, has a very objective note to it. Uh, Louis Bouillet kind of pointed this out in his own reading of Teresa of Avila, that she never loses sight of God as totally other than us and the complete object of our contemplation. So that, and what what he means is that um, we we as Christians are not concerned about psychic states we might attain. We're not really preoccupied all that much by um, uh, uh, you know mastering a technique in prayer. You can, and you may attain psychic states, but those those results, even therapeutic results, really don't define the ultimate reason why we pray. The ultimate reason why we pray has to do with the goodness and the greatness of God himself. And, um, and as we turn our hearts to him, he, uh, by the uh, uh, munificence of his sheer grace, allows us to enjoy his presence in deeper and ever more transformative ways. The, the goal of Christian prayer is to be transformed in the lot, uh, in in the presence of God, um, God, uh, uh, this presence of God, Teresa of Avila, she calls it mystical wisdom, mystical wisdom, or contemplative prayer, or contemplation, or mystical contemplation. It's a contemplation of the mystery of Christ, which always involves the holy mysteries of sacrament, unto perfect unity with the greatest mystery, the mystery of the Holy Trinity. And uh, and so that's why we call it the mm. mystical life is in the catechism. 
Yeah, I, I think this is so important. And you re- recently wrote an article for the St. Paul Center called Unmasking Popular Spiritualities, What Teresa of Avila Can Teach Us Today. And you dive into this article, this kind of idea of, of pop- popular meditation or popular mystical experiences compared to uh, what the church would propose as the point and the object and the reality of contemplation. You had this line, you said, the winds of strange doctrines and religious myths from centering prayer to Catholic mindfulness need to be answered by her feminine genius in a reproposal of the church's mystical tradition. How would you uh, unpack the distinctives between maybe what the world would offer as mindfulness or meditation or, you know, kind of the popular pop psych type stuff of going deep into yourself versus the way she understood uh, contemplation. You got at it a second ago in terms of Christ being the object of our contemplation, but could you unpack that a little further in light of what we're being kind of inundated with in the world? Sure. There's a, uh, it's wonderfully convenient for secularists and people who don't believe in God to reduce prayer to, um, some sort of therapeutic purpose. Um, uh, others look at it for uh, as a means to um, by which we can um, uh, uh, evolve the human species, and both of these fall so short of the reality of what uh, uh, prayer in the Christian tradition actually is. It's a face-to-face in um, through the obedience of faith uh, with a living God and. Um, uh, we know this uh, Teresa of Avila builds on an ancient tradition. We find it all the way back to Saint Irenaeus. Saint Irenaeus, everybody knows that uh, he, he said, "The glory of God is man fully alive." A lot of people miss the last part of that. Uh, and the life of man is the vision of God. We we become what we behold, and so when we see, when we behold the wonder of who God is divine life flows into our frail humanity. And this is what we mean by transformation. Um, uh, We don't want to just receive some kind of uh, mental relief from the sufferings of the present moment. We're not seeking so much just to still the disturbed mind that's burdened with, uh, you know, the anxieties and resentments of, of the moment. What we're about in Christian prayer is allowing the Father to communicate into our hearts a goodness that he has yearned to give us from before the foundation of the world. And when he does so, when we say yes to that goodness in our hearts, it unleashes a power in the world that makes all things new. We believe that contemplative prayer actually transforms the world when it is done with this kind of faith. The the other kinds of practices that are a lot more popular. They're usually in, uh, in the form of some sort of self-improvement um, uh, a psychological uh, project that uh, in, in and of itself, you know, isn't always the worst thing in the world. You know, there are worse things that you can be doing, in other words. But it doesn't rise to the level of, uh, of mature freedom that we're called to as sons and daughters of God. Streets of Avila was all about us realizing that true freedom that we have when we make ourselves vulnerable to everything the Father wants to communicate into our hearts. And he always communicates it to us 
through the power of his word uh, and the fire of the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, as we receive that blessing in us, we become more in the image and likeness of God and unveil that to the whole world. In particular, if anyone wants to really trace this out in the writings of Teresa Babila, I'm always blessed to kind of follow the way she sees human. She doesn't spell it out for you. I really have to kind of go through and look, but the way she sees human freedom and, uh, and, and the way it grows towards love, uh, uh, the ability to love when it, love seems to be an utter impossibility. It gets more subtle, more delicate, and more powerful the higher one goes in this kind of prayer. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think the other distinctive would be how she connects uh, this transformation, this kind of consuming fire of the Holy Spirit and the heart, uh, burning heart of Jesus Christ to the cross and to suffering and to participating in the divine life in all aspects of that reminds me of Romans 8 you know your co-heirs with Christ provided that you suffer with him and you had this line in this um, this article where you said her spirituality is not about what one experiences but what one becomes and I think that's an also a critical piece in this because uh, the journey of transformation that she's articulating for us had may have experiential elements, right? You might feel something, you might experience something, but it's not, the point is not the experience, nor is the end the experience. If it comes, great, but it's not kind of what we're looking for, not really even how we're judging if it's quote-unquote working. And again, that's such a radical, both the suffering and the kind of putting experiences in their proper place are such a radical difference from what the world offers us, which the world is saying, don't ever suffer and trust your experiences and put experience at maybe the highest level in your heart. Teresa's kind of saying, yeah, experiences are great, but not the main thing. And guess what? This transformation is going to lead in and through the cross. Well, what a powerful point. Cardinal Pell, when he, uh, one of the last talks he gave was at St. Patrick's Seminary here in Menlo Park. Uh, and he, he, we, were, we asked him about his time in prison and he talked about a great cultural battle between secularism and Christianity. He said, what defines the battle is the attitude towards suffering. Mm. In Teresa of Avila, you find in her writing that this kind of prayer we're talking about, contemplative prayer, can actually transform what's going on while you're suffering and even facing and suffering death can transform that into an encounter with God that changes everything, that unleashes God's power into the world. And uh, for the, and so you're right, for the secularist, for the person who doesn't see anything beyond this world, who doesn't see this world has kind of ordered around the sacred, ordered around the cross. Uh, 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 the worst thing that can happen to you is to suffer, <laughs> to be humiliated, right. to lose your riches, or to go to prison. Teresa of Avila opens up another avenue of contemplation that allows you to see the exigencies of this life as all part of a divine plan. And, uh, and no matter what happens, we are awaited by God, and he, His will, He's going to triumph. We have a reason for hope. Mm-hmm. Just a couple minutes left here. Uh, how would you recommend somebody beginning this road of contemplation. Okay, so we have a listener who's very inspired by Teresa, uh, says, yes, okay, I, I want this type of transformation. 
I have no idea how to begin. What would you recommend? Well, um, uh, obviously, if somebody hasn't returned to the sacraments, uh, you know, confession and going to Mass as frequently as possible mm-hmm. is the very first beginning. I also recommend that um, you choose the time of day where you're going to spend a little bit of time with God. And if you don't spend any time right now, you might make it a very modest amount of time, something like 20 minutes, where and bring have the scriptures with you, and uh, and and uh, uh, and if so, it, you know what do I do? Well, uh, before you read the scriptures, make the sign of the cross. Think about what you're doing when you make that sign, mm. and put yourself in the presence of God. You know, by an act of faith, God, I know you're present to me. I know that you have something that you want to reveal to me today, that you want to communicate something beautiful into my heart. I don't need to understand it. I don't need to feel it, but I I need whatever it is you're going to give me. I need that daily bread. Mm. And then after, in the context of that act of faith, begin to read the scriptures, the Gospel of Mark, for example, or, or, or the Psalms. Mm-hmm. This will begin a beautiful conversation with the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Anthony Lillis. You can get more from him at his blog at beginningtopray.blogspot.com and check out his new book, 30 Days with Teresa of Avila. St. Teresa of Avila, pray for us, and Lord Jesus, help us to contemplate you and be more drawn into your heart. This is Crescent in the Afternoon. We'll be right back.